Would you please turn to Luke chapter 18 in your, your Bible that you brought with you or the Bible that is found in the seat in front of you? Luke chapter 18. A close study of our culture will show that our culture and if we're honest ourselves, we are enamored with money. We are enamored and sometimes even, I should say not sometimes, we are often enamored with the accumulation of wealth from our neighborhoods. Just look around our neighborhoods. The cars that we drive, our 401ks, our investments, the clothes that we wear, the the stuff that we buy that we don't even need. We are enamored with accumulating stuff and wealth. Americans love wealth. And for some of you, you're going, well, that's not so true of me. If you would just look at my bank account, you can see that I am not enamored with with wealth because I don't have hardly a red cent. The reality is, to love money, you don't have to have lots of it. Five bucks can be just as great of a snare as five million dollars. It's all about a person's heart. Even our, our music industry clearly celebrates money donna summers and her song she works hard for her money you know some of you are all tapping and go works hard for money you know and or or there's uh for those of you who are maybe a little bit younger the the notorious big mo money mo problems some of you who are older going i've never heard of this notorious B-I-G, or, or bare naked ladies somewhere in the middle. If I had a million dollars, I love the lyrics. I read through it this week going, oh yeah, yeah if I had a million dollars. But it, it's not just a, a problem for our day and our age. Even the early church fathers knew it was an issue for all times. One of the early church fathers said this. You can throw it up there, Brent. He said this, wealth is a runaway slave, an ungrateful servant, and even a murderer. Money has a way of just not, we're we're never kind of being satisfied. And ultimately, the uh, the accumulation of the desire for wealth even leads to somewhere in our hearts and our minds, even a bit of death. Money and wealth. This morning we are going to be looking at a well-known passage, uh, an interaction between Jesus and Someone who is labeled the rich young ruler. I'm glad that he doesn't have a name because therefore it applies to you and it applies to me. It's not just this rich young man named Bob. It is a rich young ruler. Kind of in a generic sense. And this, this conversation between Jesus and this young man is recorded three different times in the New Testament. Therefore, it kind of has this way of emphasizing, man, Three of the gospel writers said, this is important. We are going to tell it from three different perspectives, and we want you to hear the importance of this. He, Jesus wanted his disciples and ourselves to learn the differences of being in the kingdom of God and being oh so near 
into the kingdom of God. It's like the difference between having a job interview and actually having the job. Many are close. And we look at them and we we want to say to them, man, just a little push and they would be in the kingdom. But they are not in the kingdom yet. And Jesus is teaching his, His disciples to not be too quick about assuring people who are on the borders of the kingdom that they are actually in the kingdom. We disciples, whether we are are, are ministers of the gospel or whether we are people in a congregation or parents dealing with our children or friends dealing with friends, we do not have the power to bring people into the kingdom. We don't have the ability to just give them a little kick and suddenly they are in the kingdom. So this morning we are going to, along with the disciples, see how Jesus deals with this man how he humbled this man, and how he didn't assure him that all was well. So my friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We are going to start with verse 18 of Luke chapter 18, and we are going to read to verse 30. Hear God's Word. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to him, truly, I say to you. There is no one who has left his house or his wife or his brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here we have a conversation between Jesus and this, this man. And Jesus exposes at least three barriers that this man faced and people in general also face when they are confronted with the gospel. Three barriers. And these barriers exist in every single person's heart, no matter what their race, no matter what their socioeconomic background, no matter what their upbringing is. These barriers exist in your family members. They exist in your co-workers. They exist in your children. They exist in your spouse. They ex- exist in you 
These barriers exist even in you. So this interaction, even though it is uh, labeled the, the story, the account of the, Jesus and the rich young ruler, this, even though you go, I am not rich, I am not young, and in no way am I ruling, this applies to you. So we are going to, as we look at these barriers, I think it's important to start off with the interaction that Jesus had with this young man. And it starts in verse 13. This young man came running up to Jesus. And, and in uh, Mark's account, he, he ran up to Jesus. Not only ran up to Jesus, he fell on his knees in front of him. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to in, inherit eternal life? So looking at the, the whole context, Jesus had just got done rebuking the Pharisees and, and he confronted his own disciples for not allowing children to come into his presence. Which led him to say that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you enter like a child. And it was shortly after this, this, this man came, this rich young Euler, ruler came to him and got down on his knees and said, hey, how do, I, how do I earn eternal life? But there's some things that we've got to notice about this man. One, it says that he is a young man. He is full of potential. He had plenty of life. After all, he was running to Jesus. If he was anybody my age or maybe a little bit older, we would have been kind of sauntering along and trying to find opportune times to get to Jesus where the crowd kind of parts and we can make our way to him. But he was a rich young man who ran to Jesus. He was also described as a leader in their society. The, the, Luke uses the word ruler to describe him. More than likely, he was some kind of civic leader who was well-known in his community, who had, he was known for his character, he was known for his good deeds. But on top of that, he was also rich. A man of great possessions. And the reason why this is so important is because in that Jewish culture, a man who was rich was seen as a man who was truly blessed by God because of his righteousness his uprightness his his standing and god blessed him therefore so you can almost see in some way that the health wealth gospel had even reached this jewish culture so it is this man that the gospel of mark describes as running up to and kneeling before jesus to interact with him and it was in this interaction with Jesus that we quickly see that this rich young ruler interacted with Jesus and views Jesus as the Son of God, and he sees the Son of God as the mean, his means to his end. First, in how he addresses Jesus. Ah, good teacher. He recognizes Jesus as unique in, in even standing above all the other rabbis, all the other teachers that are around. He is a good teacher. So he labels Jesus not just as a teacher, but you are a good teacher. But also notice the question that he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man recognizes in his heart, in his life, in his role within the community, that something is still missing in his life. 
There is a gap. So he, is, he essentially asked Jesus, what is one more thing that I can do to inherit eternal life? Give me the scrib notes. Help me figure out what is that one more thing that I can do. And he views Jesus as a good teacher that will aid him on his path to self-justification. And this, my friends, is the first barrier that people face when confronted with the gospel. And the first barrier is just bad theology. Bad theology. In theology, you say, man, is that not something reserved for pastors and elders and deacons and maybe even ministry leaders? Is theology, is it really important for me to understand theology? The reality is, no matter who you are, where you live, what you do for a living, or even what your worldview is, you do have a view, a theology of God. Your theology actually matters. Theology is the study, the knowing of God. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this. The most portentous, the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So at the end of the day, the most important thing you thing about you is not your gifts. It's not your upbringing. And it's not the possessions that you have. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. Because what you believe about God will determine what you believe about the Gospel. And what you believe about the Gospel has, my friends, eternal, eternal implications. So the reason why this is such a barrier is because your view of God, if your view of God is shaped by anything less than the Bible itself, you will inevitably recreate a gospel that meets your felt needs instead of the eternal needs and never embrace the biblical Jesus. Or as St. Augustine says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's kind of our culture, isn't it? I'm going to believe what I like, but I'm going to reject what I don't like. If he says that's true, it is not the gospel that you believe but yourself. So how can you help unbelievers understand who God is? Well, one, I would say, being in God's Word, 
studying God's Word, doing it within a community of friends and family and just saying, let's dive into, let's get to know who God is. It could be through the ministries of the church, the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the children's ministry, wherever it is, your missional community. Get involved and get in to God's Word and just say, who is God? But how do we help others outside of the church who are not yet a part of God's kingdom? How do we help them understand who God is? My friend, it is by building bridges of grace that support the weight of truth. We do this by spending time with them, getting to know their name, listening to what excites them, learning about what it is that they love. And as we do, we look for opportunities to share about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So here's the question. What can you do this very week, this afternoon, Monday morning, Friday? What can you do this very week to start building bridges of grace into your neighbors, your coworkers, whoever you come in contact with? And I'm going to encourage you. In, handed with you to the bulletins is an insert. There are ideas in there of how you can be building bridges of grace into your neighborhoods. So please, friends, do not neglect the privilege of building these bridges. Now, notice how Jesus responded to this ruler. Jesus said, now why do you call me good? No one is good except... God alone. You know the commandments. Do not bear, uh, do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And without a hesitation, this young man responds, all these I have done. That, my friends, is gutsy. But you know what? Even the Apostle Paul said that when it comes to the law, he was blameless. The Apostle Paul said when it comes to following rules, he could just say, man, since my bar mitzvah, I I, I was blameless at, at upholding the law. But Jesus here said, listen, I am going to list these commandments because why? Because I want to show you in reality, underneath all your law keeping, how desperately broken and needy you really are. What's wrong with this? With this young man? He, after all, he was a, a hard-working, religious young man. With, it seemed like good mo- motives. What's the big deal? Well, let me tell you a story about Procter & Gamble. A few years ago, a chemist from Procter Gamble developed this amazing product that the company believed would revolutionize the world. And it was a product that would eliminate odor out of any material, no matter how strong the smell is. Does anybody have an idea what this product is called? Febreze, yes. Uh, it was a brown gown. At that time, it was this groundbreaking kind of product that they believed had dollar signs all over it, and the, the top executives were all in with marketing this product called Febreze. 
So they packaged it, they distributed it to a few test cities, and they really marketed it really hard. The problem is, no one was buying it. No one was buying it. Even women who received free samples were not returning to the store to buy it. This revolutionary marketing kind of genius thing, it takes the terrible smells out of your clothing, out of your carpet, out of your teenage boy's sweatshirt. Nobody was buying it. So Procter & Gamble hired a top marketing strategist to assemble a team and to figure out how they could fix this problem. They sent out hundreds of test bottles to select households, and the idea was after a month of use, the marketing team would then fly out to all these various households, and they would interview all these different users. So they got really specific. One user was an elderly woman from Phoenix, Arizona. When the team arrived at her house and they walked inside, they quickly smelled the stench of But it wasn't just one cat. She was the cat lady. She had nine. Nine cats. I think there's something in the Bible about cats in general, but I can't find the verse. <laughs> but um, this team asked this, this elderly woman if she had found Febreze to be helpful. And she replied with a very stern, No. Yet when the team looked at the woman's bottle of Febreze, they found it to be completely full. Full. It had not even been used once. The seal had not been broken. One of the team members asked the woman, why aren't you using the product? And the woman replied, I didn't see the need for it. It was after that meeting that Procter & Gamble learned an important lesson. If the buyer does not see the need for a product, they will not buy it regardless of how good it really is. And that is the second barrier that the rich young ruler has when he was faced with the the gospel. It is this idea of self-righteousness. I don't have a need for it. I have no need for it. His response quickly revealed the self-righteousness that was residing in his own heart. Self-righteousness is the belief that I am not ruined. I am not a broken sinner in need of God's grace. I am fine right where I'm at. And as a result, when I am confronted with the grace, which with uh, with the gospel, which tells me that I am a broken sinner, I am ruined, and I am dire need of God's grace. I say in my heart, I, I don't see a need for it. I'm fine right where I'm at with my own stench because I can't even smell the stench. I am fine right here. Who needs the the Febreze gospel? I am fine right here. So maybe. You've had an opportunity, like me, where you've shared the gospel with somebody who, and they, they respond by saying, oh, hey, Paul, that, that is great and all, but really, I, I don't need all that Jesus stuff yet. 
maybe later in my life. Maybe when my, we have, me and my wife have kids and they grow up, maybe we'll come back to the church and we'll get into that Jesus thing. But for right now, we are fine exactly right where we're at. And what that person is really saying without them even realizing it is that I am self-righteous. I am not ruined and I am not a broken sinner in need of God's grace. And the scary thing is that this does not happen just outside of the church. The scary thing is this self-righteousness even manifests itself here, right here, in this church, in our family, amongst other Christians. And you might be going, I'm not self-righteous. Prove it. Okay, let me do it. How about when you tell stories? Are you the wise hero? Always making all the right decisions at just the right time. And because you want people to know how wise and great you are, you always come out on top of the story that you are telling. If that is you, you are self-righteous. How about this? You always defend yourself when someone points out a weakness or a wrong that you have committed. Because after all, I know me better than they know me, if they only really knew. A defensive posture may reveal that you are self-righteous. What about this? You make yourself feel good about what God says is bad. You're skilled in recasting the wrong that you have done in such a way that it doesn't look that bad. So that why do you do that? Because you can avoid the feelings about feeling bad about what God calls us in. My friends, that, that may reveal in your heart that you too are self-righteous. Or how about this? You do not celebrate the grace at work in other people's lives because you are too busy about how you could have done what they did even better. My friends, if that is true of you, that could be self-righteousness. The reason some of us become so, think about this, become so dull in our worship is because of our own self-righteousness. There are some times that I worry about us. I worry about us in our worship, our our actual singing together. I I worry about us. I, I worry about our bland blondness. Why? Because I wonder if underneath it all is really self-righteousness. Paul Tripp describes it this way. You can throw it up, Brent. You'll never celebrate grace as much as you should when you think you're more righteous than you actually are. It's hard. No, it's impossible to sing phrases like, Oh, praise the one who paid my debt with any passion if you believe that your debt is actually small. The reason some people never believe the gospel is due to the simple fact that they, like the rich young ruler, believe that they just don't need it. This is a great song for them. If you only knew their debt, 
There should be tears flowing from their faces. They should be down on their knees before God saying, Lord, forgive me. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. But me, I'm doing all right. So what did Jesus do? When Jesus heard this young man's response, he said to him, young man, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And then come, follow after me. So Jesus is calling this man to do what all people who desire to follow Jesus must do. And that is this. Trust in him alone. Trusting in Jesus cannot be half a foot in and a half a foot out. You're either all in or all out. Earlier in in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus is essentially saying, so you want to inherit eternal life? You want to do that? Is that really the core of your question? Then give up what is most precious to you and place your trust wholly, completely in me. Give up everything that this world says has has a value. Give up everything in your heart that you believe has value. And what would be the result? Jesus says the result, if you trust in me completely and wholly, the result is you will have treasure in heaven. One commentator put it this way. Jesus is telling the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have. And I love this. And in return, I will give you myself. And is that not worship? Is that not worship, what worship is? The saying, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to you. And Jesus says, yes. Here here I am for you. But this young man's response was tragic when he heard this thing he became very sad for he was extremely rich and this verse has been called by some the saddest verse in the entire bible because this man when being confronted by the gospel with the call to abandon all that he had to follow jesus refused he refused outright refused The text said when he heard the call to abandon everything and trust in Jesus alone, he became, in the Greek, increasingly sad. Not just sad, but it it kind of grew in his heart. And why such sadness? Because this man, he had placed his trust not in wealth, but in a lot of wealth. He was extremely wealthy. He loved his money more than his maker. He, was, he wanted to keep on drinking from broken cisterns rather than f- drink from the fountain of living life, wa- living water. Amy Carmichael, if you ever want to read a great story of a, of a missionary woman, read the, the biography of Amy Carmichael. But she once had experienced something very similar to this Luke 18 account. She was having an interaction with a a Hindu queen in in her palace. And as the conversation between the two of them developed, the queen shared with Amy Carmichael that she had a spiritual kind of hunger. 
So what did Amy Carmichael do? She opened up the Bible, and she read to her Luke 18. And she read Jesus' words, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And Amy would go on to later write this. As I read her verse after verse of Luke 18, her face settled sorrowfully. At the end of my reading, she looked with great sorrow on her face and said, so far, I must follow Jesus? So far? I can't follow him that far. In the same way, the rich young ruler, after hearing that it, what it would cost him to follow Jesus, said in his heart, I cannot follow you that far and in doing so jesus revealed the third barrier of this man's heart as he was confronted with the gospel false gods and this is the very barrier that kept him from trusting jesus and it is the same barrier that drives other people and maybe even you this morning from trusting solely in Christ. So what is a false god? You know, if you're astute in the Bible, you might be going, man, I, I do not worship any kind of uh, false gods. I don't, I don't have any carved images. I don't have any statues of Mary. I don't have any of these things in my home. I am good. I'm clear. I'm free and clean. I have no false gods. But Tim Keller wants to uh, kind of raise his hand and say, hold on. He defines that it this way. A false god is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life will have meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure if I have He goes on to say, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the word to use is worship. The question this morning is not, do I worship? The question is, what or who am I worshiping? The quickest way to find out uh, what you are worshiping is just by completing this simple sentence. And listen to it. My life only has meaning if. Fill in the blank. For some of you younger folks, maybe it's college. Maybe it's that career. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's relational security. Life only has meaning if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. Life only has meaning if I'm highly productive and get a lot done. Life only has meaning if I have a particular look or body image. On and on and on and on and on we go. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Your heart is a perpetual factory factory of idols creating more and more if i only have that if i only have that if i only have her if i only have him if i only have this perfect family if i only have this then my life will be complete we love to worship the created rather rather than 
the Creator. And as a result, when unbelievers are confronted with the Gospel, they see it as an add-on or a hindrance to their life. And therefore, they walk away from it altogether, never obtaining that which their thirsty hearts just long for. And Jesus, it goes on in verse 24, Jesus seeing that He had become sad. And Mark says he, He turns to His disciples and the crowds with Him. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Man, we, we, could, we could put so many... I, I know that the text here is specifically talking about wealth, but I think that we could put a whole slew of things in here. How difficult it is for those who have marriage to enter the kingdom of God because we have a way of idolatry idolatry around marriage how hard it is for those who have children or wealth or a prominent job or those who are in ministry even to enter into the kingdom of god but specifically why is it with money so difficult Because money has a way of tempting us to believe that life has meaning based on the numbers that are found in our bank account. It's actually tangible, touchable kind of stuff. Money more than any other asset has a way of blinding us to our need for God. Because with money comes fame, it comes status, it comes comfort, it comes pleasure. And if I have these things some kind of security, why would I need Jesus? I already have safety, security, comfort, and pleasure. I can buy it. I can control it. I am the master of my domain. How difficult it is, Jesus says. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus raises the bar another notch. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. The camel was the largest uh, native mammal that was found in Palestine soil. And the eye of the needle was the tiniest opening that they could think of. The idea of fitting this large mammal through the tiny opening of a needle is absolutely ridiculous. Actually, there was a scientist in in England who said it is possible. It would require lasers. And I'm just, I read it all and I go, that that is absurd. If you were to talk to a child about taking a camel through a needle and trying to shove it through that small opening, they would immediately know that that's that's a sham. It's impossible. Why? Because it is impossible. In fact, the idea is not only ridiculous, it's improbable. It's just outside of the realm of possibility. And that, my friends, is the point. It's impossible for a camel, camel to be squeezed through the eye of a needle as it is for a rich man who believed that he had favor with God in his life because of the riches and the good deeds that he had. It's impossible for that man, based on his theological, self-righteous view, false gods in his life, to get into 
the kingdom of heaven. See, the point Jesus is making is absolutely plain. It is impossible for you to be wealthy enough, moral enough, obedient enough to enter into the kingdom of God. You just cannot do it. I don't care how many committees and ministries and things that you do to serve. That is not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. I don't care how much money you have and if you can bankroll this church and a whole bunch of other churches, it does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. I don't care how many rules you can follow that are in the Bible. It doesn't matter. That does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Jonathan Edwards agreed when he wrote this, to take on yourself to work out redemption is a greater thing than if you would have taken it upon yourself to create the world. In other words, it would be easier for you to create an entire planet, the entire universe, than to earn your way into heaven. Think of the impossibility. And of course, Jesus is saying all these things to his disciples. And as they hear it, they finally speak up and they say, then who can be saved? And here's this man standing before Jesus who is, who is their superior in every aspect. He's wealthy, he's moral, and he's obviously blessed by God. And yet he leaves his conversation with Jesus saddened because Jesus had called him to abandon literally everything to follow him. And their response to this interaction is simply, who can be saved? In other words, if this guy can't get in, what hope do we have? And if we're honest, it is the same question we must ask when we think of the barriers of bad theology, of self-righteousness and false gods that our lost family members, friends, co-workers, and maybe even you face today. On top of that, all the Bible describes our natural condition as being blinded. Blinded in such a way that we are even unable to see the glorious light of the good news. Not only are we blind, the Bible sums up that our natural uh, condition is that we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our sins. Your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving child, your unbelieving friend, your unbelieving co-worker, your unbelieving uh, neighbor, maybe even yourself, you are blind, you are self-righteous, you are an idol-worshipping sinner that is dead in your trespasses and you cannot work themselves out. And all this leads us to ask, what hope do we have? But praise be to God for verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. There's just, I have an app that collects interesting stories. And uh, several years ago, I came across a play that was kind of a spinoff of uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. And in the middle of the play, it was a, a young woman, woman living in peace and in serenity in a village until one night she wakes up in the middle of the night to a frightening sight. Her hands are covered in blood. 
And panicking, she ran to the nearby faucet to wash off the stains. But to her, her horror, the stains would not come out. She immediately went to a nearby doctor and, and was met with the bad news. This is a permanent stain. You aren't going to get rid of it. It would be, the reality is, it cannot be removed. And as a result, the woman lived in shame and in guilt, knowing that because of her stain, she would never be loved. She would never be wanted. And as a result, she wore clothing that concealed her hands so that the stain would never be seen. Not long after this, she was walking in a park and she met a man. The playwright described him as a kind and a humble man, shining with a glory unlike any other man in the village. This man came up to her and, and said, Loved one, I can take your stain. Shocked that he knew anything about her dark secret, she replied, You cannot! It is impossible to remove my stain. The man reached out his hands to the woman and said, Loved one, give me your stain. The woman, with hesitation, revealed her blood-stained hands, put them in his hands, and in a matter of moments, her hands were clean. What did you do to take away my, sin, my stain? She asked. The man lifted up his now blood-stained hands and said, I took it upon myself our hope is not that we can work hard enough that we can earn enough or that we can be good enough we do not call our uh, we do not call our unbelieving spouse our children or neighbors to try and hide their stain of sin or work our, work really hard at covering it up or to wash their stain out our hope our good news has a name and his name is Jesus. And because through Jesus, God makes the impossible absolutely possible by taking your saint upon Himself. Why? So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So there are these, these implications, my friends, are huge. First of all, there's no such thing as a person being too far gone. Hear that. There's no person who is too far gone. So if you're a Christian this morning and you are a walking testimony of this reality, Ephesians 2 says that before Jesus you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But what happened? But God. But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for you. So when you share the gospel with that hard-hearted son, that hard-hearted daughter, that resistant spouse, that skeptical neighbor, look at your own life and remember, if God can save me, He can save anyone. Remind yourself that there is no barrier so strong that it cannot withstand the grace of God. Nothing. And the second implication is this. 
And with this, we'll, we'll close. The second implication is this good news will never cease to be good news. Do you realize that we are going to be celebrating this truth for all of eternity? God raised him, raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness. This is going to be the resounding theme of all of heaven. And it is not going to be, look at me, look at what I have done. The resounding theme of heaven is going to be, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That is going to be the resounding song and theme of heaven. Worthy are you. All glory and honor. Oh. I'm going to end with a prayer from Scotty Smith, who is the founding and now retired pastor at Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee. And his prayer is entitled, A Prayer for Keeping a Gospel Perspective on Money and Wealth. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, all you have to do is give Wall Street a little tap. And we're reminded how foolish it is to trust in anything or anyone but you. Eagle-like economies become startled starlings and take flight. Indeed, as you tell us, Father, riches deserve but a glance but Jesus must have our gaze. No matter the financial season, a winter of discontent, a spring of lush green, a summer of scattered showers, or a fall of falling markets, teach us the way of contentment, Lord. Intensify our love for Jesus so our love for money will shrink to a proper, healthy gospel size and whether we have a superabundance of wealth or quite literally are praying for our daily bread free us to be generous with what you give us every good gift we have comes from above period you promise never to leave us or forsake us and you promise to enrich us in every way so that we can always be generous we praise, bless, and adore you for your faithfulness and generosity. Like the currency exchange in large airports, Father, establish new values in the currency exchange of our hearts. May we value a rich relationship with you more than all the other stuff we tend to put our hope and trust in or look to for peace and joy. So very amen we pray in Jesus' exalted and trustworthy name. Amen.